Psalm number 45, this is to the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters, king's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. All right, our uh, sermon today is going to be from Genesis chapter 12. Okay, we're starting a new chapter. Take about three, four weeks to get through it, but uh, we're going to do verses 1 through 11. What's that? Did I say Genesis? I'm sorry, Exodus. Still back in Genesis. Exodus uh, 12, 1 through 11. It is the Lord's Passover. Okay, so uh, Exodus 12, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintels of the, lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with heaven, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire, and you shall thus eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, due to the length of this sermon, my opening comments will be real short. 
In just 11 verses, we're going to see a few points which form patterns which fill both the pages of the Bible and concepts of redemptive history which first picture and then are repeated in the work of the Lord Jesus. Everything fits as it should because it comes from the mind and the wisdom of God. And all of it points to Jesus because it is all about Jesus. This is our God. This is our Savior. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our text verse today comes from Revelation chapter 5. It's the sixth verse. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What glory is to be found in his superior word? And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the beginning of your months, which is verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. The beginning of chapter 12 highlights once again that what occurs or is mandated is at the direction of Jehovah. In the past, it has been the call of Moses and Aaron. The announcement of the Lord's intentions for Israel to the people of Israel, the confrontation with Pharaoh, the giving of the signs and wonders, and so on. Now, actual legal matters, which are a part of the law itself, are to be given. This constant use of the words, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, are given to show us that divine authority rests behind both the redemptive process of Israel as well as their laws and their practices. This includes the entire spectrum of the body which regulated Israel's affairs, religious, ecclesiastical, and political. Everything which is to govern their society was of divine, not human origin. Further, there is a certain dignity which is given to this particular instruction for the Passover. Though it's a part of the law which is recorded at Mount Sinai, its practices actually precede the other laws which will be given. Thus, the Passover is a sign of their redemption. In other words, it precedes the event itself. Further, the name of Moses and Aaron here shows that these two alone are the recipients of the law. A special distinction is bestowed upon them as prophets who will transmit the law. After them, all of the other prophets who follow will merely work within the confines of that law. And so, in anticipation of the coming Passover, these words were spoken. Much of this chapter may actually have occurred prior to the ending of the plagues recorded previously. But in order to show the logical progression of the plagues, these words follow after the final meeting with Pharaoh. Therefore, it might rightly be translated, now the Lord had spoken to Moses and Aaron. If so, then when the law was given at Mount Sinai, the Lord carefully selected all of the details of history from Genesis 1 verse 1 right through the Exodus account and put them in the order which follows logically for us to understand the events as they occurred, but in separate sections to avoid them overlapping. This was seen, for example, in the life of Isaac. This happened many times in Genesis, but in the life of Isaac, his death is recorded in Genesis 35. And yet some events which occur during his life come in later chapters. The same is probably true here. The instructions for the Passover here in chapter 12 may actually predate the events of the ninth plague, that of darkness. And I believe that they do. Verse 1 continues, In the land of Egypt, saying... 
Later in the law, there will be additional instructions or repeats of these instructions concerning the Passover for the people of Israel. The words, in the land of Egypt, are stated here to show that a separate instruction on the Passover was given prior to the actual giving of the rest of the law, but that it is included in the entire law. Thus, it is one harmonious whole, even if it was received at a different place in time. We think of the law as being received there at Mount Sinai as being the one and only giving of the law. But in all, there are actually three unique times and places where the law is derived from. First, this portion here in Egypt. The next will be at Mount Sinai when the people were brought there after the Exodus. And third, it will be there again using the name Mount Horeb. Okay, this will occur during the time after the wilderness wanderings. There, the final reception will occur, which encompasses the entire book of Deuteronomy. Now, we can't say that Deuteronomy is merely a repetition of the same law because there are noted differences and there are additions in Deuteronomy. As one of many examples, we can look at the fourth of the Ten Commandments, okay? When it was received after the Exodus, the reason for it reads this in Exodus chapter 20. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it, okay? However, when it was repeated after the wilderness wanderings, the reason given is different. There it says, and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In the first announcement of the fourth commandment, the reason given is based on creation, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the second announcement, the reason given is based on redemption. The Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. This is a pattern which will continue all the way throughout Scripture, even to the book of Revelation. Further, the words in the land of Egypt show the Lord's dominion even in the midst of the enemies of Israel. In the past, he had established them as a people, and he continued to tend to them in Egypt. The pattern follows later in history as well. Israel was called out of the midst of her enemies, having been tended to during their Babylonian exile. The church was later established in the midst of their hostile Jewish enemies. Later, the true church was called out of the false church during the Reformation. And in a marked incident of immense magnitude, which has happened in some of our lifetimes, Israel has once again been called out of exile from among the enemies around her and back to her homeland. As the church age is ending, Israel is being prepared for her long-anticipated meeting with the Lord. He is carefully tended to them in the midst of their enemies. Finally, these words show us the anticipatory nature of such occurrences. The giving of the Passover in Egypt anticipates the assurance of redemption from Egypt. The giving of the Lord's Supper before his death anticipated our redemption. And the repeated taking of the Lord's Supper as a memorial anticipates the realization of our redemption. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. A lot can be discerned from the few words of this first important verse of Exodus chapter 12. One of the things we saw in them is perfectly realized in the next verse, that of creation preceding redemption. Verse 2, 
This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Until this time, the Bible has been dated based on the creation model and the creation calendar. The story of Noah, for example, gives specific dates, but they are based on the creation calendar, which began in the month of Tishri. Now a new calendar, a redemption calendar, has been instituted by the Lord for his people. As I said, this pattern of redemption following creation follows all the way throughout the Bible. In the book of Revelation, there are 24 elders before the throne of their creator, acknowledging him as such, as the creator, and they fall down before him with these words from Revelation chapter 4. It says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. However, in the next chapter, chapter 5, it notes that there is a lamb at the middle of the throne whom they fall down before, acknowledging him for his acts of redemption with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Like the calendars of the Bible, like the reason for the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments, and like the reason for praising God in the book of Revelation, the pattern, it follows from creation to redemption. And so in anticipation of the redemption of Israel, Moses is told that this will be the first month for the redeemed of the Lord. In Exodus 3, verse 4, the, or I'm sorry, Exodus 13, verse 4, the name of the month will be given. The name is Aviv. Later, in the books of Nehemiah and Esther, this same month is going to be called by its Babylonian name, which is Nisan. However, it remains the same month regardless of which name is used. The name Aviv means greenness or fresh, and it indicates fresh young ears of barley grain, which come forth at this time of year. In the Bible, this will continue to be the first month of the religious calendar. Tishri will be the first month of the civil calendar. Understanding when one calendar or the other is used will eliminate any supposed contradictions in the dating of the kings of Israel. What seems like almost horrendous error between the books of Kings and Chronicles is actually perfectly given dates using these two different calendars. As an interesting pattern, the first sacred month is the seventh month of the civil calendar, and the first civil month is the seventh month of the sacred calendar. Understanding this will reveal marvelous patterns concerning the work of Jesus Christ, which are hidden right in plain sight in the Bible. The story of Noah, for example, is a hidden story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By understanding which calendar is being used, one will be able to pull out immense riches from this sacred word. As an interesting note, the Hebrew calendar is unique, and it follows neither the Egyptian nor the Babylonian calendars. It is given by God for the people of God in order to reveal the work of Christ in history. During the church age, this calendar has not been used by us because we have been called out of the Gentile world. However, as we approach the end of the church age, these patterns and seasons are once again coming into focus and greater use. God is preparing the world for the end times and then the return of his son to the world for a thousand years. Creation must precede redemption, just as Genesis precedes Exodus. From the plagues of Egypt, Israel received exemption. 
by a working of the Lord so glorious. And one more plague will come upon the land. In it, Egypt will find itself in a terrible jam. But once again, God will be seen as more than grand through the Passover and the slaying of the lamb. In this plague, Israel will finally find its release from Egypt's bondage and servitude. The long years of toil will finally cease, and out from Egypt will march the Hebrew multitude. Our second thought, a lamb without blemish. Verses 3 through 6. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. What's obvious here is that these instructions were given prior to the tenth of the month. For the Lord to say for this to be done after speaking to the congregation implies that it was spoken at a time in advance of the tenth. In this verse is the first use of the word edah, or congregation, in the entire Bible. Thus, it is the first time that Israel is considered as such. The word comes from another word, ya'ad, which means to appoint or to meet. They are now a congregation of people involved in a united act according to the command of God. And this commandment is to do a certain thing at a specified time. On the 10th day of the first month, they are told to take a lamb according to the house of the father. This means appropriate to the size of the house. The word lamb here in the New King James Version is the word se, and it implies one of the flock. It can be either a lamb or a goat, so lamb isn't really a great translation here. It could also mean any age or either sex. Later, more specific instructions will be given concerning this animal, though. What is also implied is that the people had the ability to either own or afford such a lamb. There seems to have been no one who was extremely impoverished among the people. This tenth day of the first month is the exact same day which the Israelites will cross the Jordan exactly to the day 40 years later. That is recorded in Joshua 4 verse 19 where it says this, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Verse 4, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Well, this verse here is obvious on the surface. If one lamb is too large for a family, then they could unite with another family to have the right-sized meal for the number of people involved. Later rabbinic traditions place the size of the family at no less than 10 people and it also noted that no more than 20 was considered appropriate. So from 10 to 20 people is what the Jewish people would have observed later. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. Everything about the Passover anticipates Christ Jesus. Everything. The lamb will be a Passover sacrifice which will, because of its nourishment, carry the people through the exodus of their redemption from Egypt. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. His life, because of its nourishment, carries the believer through the exodus of our redemption from the world of sin and death, which Egypt pictures. Paul in the New Testament explicitly calls Jesus the Passover offering in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. That this lamb was to be without blemish is realized in Christ's perfect life. In Luke 23, after his interrogation concerning the Lord, 
Pilate declared Jesus without any fault. He said this, So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. In Hebrews 7.26, we read this about Jesus. For such a high priest was it was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And Peter, writing to the Jews of the dispersion, refers directly to the Passover for his description of Jesus. He says this, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. No defect was to be seen in these Passover lambs because they were to picture to the world the perfect, undefiled, and spotless lamb of God whom they picture. Verse 5 going on, a male of the first year. This requirement is given to the Hebrews as a note concerning the lamb standing in place of the firstborn. The firstborn was to be redeemed through the death of the lamb. Thus, it is an act of substitution. However, this restriction also looks ahead to Jesus Christ. In the first year, the animal is considered more perfect in terms of innocence than it is later in life. And yet, it is in the midst of its life. Later in Exodus, it will prescribe that such offerings come after the eighth day of their life. This is the same day that a baby is circumcised in Israel. Therefore, it pictures the innocent Christ in the midst of life. Not a baby born in Bethlehem, not an old man in Nazareth, but a male in Jerusalem in the midst of his life, and yet endowed with innocence, waiting to be made an offering of redemption. He was born without original sin. He lived without any sort of committed transgression, and he was humble, he was pure, and he was undefiled and harmless. He is the epitome of what we would think of in such an innocent animal. Verse 5 going on, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Both animals are used for sacrifices in the Bible for various reasons. This exception here at the Passover for either a sheep or a goat was probably given to allow the poorer people to buy a less valuable goat than a sheep. The smell of the goat offering is not as sweet as a lamb offering. Therefore, the goat is used to picture a sin offering. That would picture Christ, who, as Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The lamb, having the finer smell, would picture Christ as Paul's words of Ephesians chapter 5 states, And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The lamb was generally considered more likely as a choice at the Passover among the people. But either animal ultimately pictures Christ's work. Thus the Lord allowed either for this particular feast. Verse 6, Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. This then is a period of five days. If one selects an animal on the tenth day and sacrifices it in the evening on the fourteenth day, it is a total of five days. The animal was to be kept during this period and until the time of the Passover. The reason for this, and a lot of pastors like to say, well, it was to observe the animal for defects during that week. You hear it in sermons all the time. That is not why it was given five days, all right? Rather, it was selected because it had no defects. Animals with defects were noted and they were disregarded at the selection of the animal. 
The reason for this advanced time was to ensure that everyone had an animal ready for the Passover. This is especially true considering that these instructions probably came before the plague of darkness, which lasted three full days. Therefore, the selection five days earlier was necessary. In picture, this five-day period is speaking of the time frame from the evening of Palm Sunday, when Christ rode the donkey into Jerusalem, until the evening of the Passover, which the four Gospels record as being five full days. In Mark 11, verse 11, it says this, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things at the hour, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If one counts five evenings from Sunday evening, they will come to Friday evening. Sunday evening to Monday evening is one. Monday to Tuesday is two. Tuesday to Wednesday is three. Wednesday to Thursday is four. And Thursday to Friday is five. And if anyone is interested in a detailed breakdown of the four Gospels showing exactly this, all they need to do is go to the written update of this particular sermon, which I will post on the Superior Word website, and I will include an entire breakdown of it at the end of the sermon. The key to understanding the timeline for Christ's day of crucifixion is the term preparation day. That one term is used in all four Gospels. If one follows the timeline and notes the term, they can see the perfection of the timeline given here in Exodus, and it is realized in the harmoniously recorded Gospels. In the greater picture of Jesus' ministry, this early selection, the purpose of it, rather than being a time of inspecting for defect, was, as Matthew Henry states, denoting the marking out of the Lord Jesus to be a Savior, both in purpose and in the promise. Adam Clark importantly notes that four things marked out this particular Passover, which are never required again in any later Passover observance. Here they are. The eating of the lamb in their houses dispersed throughout Goshen. The taking of the lamb on the 10th day. The striking of its blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of their houses. And the eating of the lamb in haste. Succeeding generations did not have these requirements levied upon them. Thus, the original Passover alone serves as the necessary picture of the greater work of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 continues, Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it. This is one of the main parts of the Passover that is unlike any other sacrifices that are later mentioned for Israel. The congregation itself sacrificed the animal rather than it being done by priests. This actually looks forward to the words of John, which are in Revelation chapter 1. He says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This act in Exodus recognized the priestly status of the people as a nation, just as we have been given priestly status in Christ. Verse 6 going on, At twilight. The Hebrew here is ben ha arbaim, between the evenings. It's plural. It seems like a little bit of a perplexing phrase, and I can't pronounce it either. It seems like a perplexing phrase, but one has to consider biblical time to understand what is being said here. According to the Bible, a day is divided into evening and morning. Thus, there are actually two evenings to be reckoned. The first began after 12, and it went through until sunset. The second evening began at sunset, and it continued until night, meaning the time of twilight. 
This would therefore be between 12 o'clock and the termination of twilight, between the evenings, all right? This is a phrase which allows the three o'clock sacrifices at the temple to be considered the evening sacrifice, even though to us it would be considered an afternoon sacrifice. This is the exact same time that Christ died on the cross, which is recorded in the Gospels as three o'clock in the afternoon. Hence, this term is very important, between the evenings. A lamb, spotless and pure, without any defect, will be sacrificed in my place. And looking at that lamb, I can certainly detect the greatest love and grace. This I see looking upon his face. Oh, that I could refrain and not see him die. Oh, if there could be any other way. How could this lamb go through with it for one such as I? Oh, God, this perfect lamb alone my sin debt can pay. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sinless one there on Calvary's tree. He has prevailed and the path to heaven has been unfurled. The Lamb of God who died for sinners like you and me. Our third thought today is it is the Lord's Passover. Verses 7 through 11. Verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the little of the houses where they eat it. After the animal was slaughtered, its blood would be drained into a bowl, and from there it would be taken to the doorway. Verse 22 will show us that it was to be applied using a bunch of hyssop. The hyssop was to be dipped into the blood, and then it was to be struck to the doorposts and the lintels. The word for doorposts here, some of you are probably aware of it, it's mezuzot. It's the plural of mezuzah. Hebrew people or Jewish people put the little thing on the side of their door, that's called a mezuzah. The lentil is a word found only here in the Exodus account. It's mashkof. It comes from another word, shachaf, which means to look down. And so it was probably a latticed window above the doorway. The base of the window would be the door's lentil. The word shachaf is used in Psalm 85 when speaking of the Lord. Here's what it says. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. I don't want to stretch the meaning of this word mashkof too much, but I cannot personally help see in this word, which is only used three times in the Bible, and all three are in this chapter pertaining to the Passover, that it appears to be a picture of Christ on the cross looking down from the eyes which bled in agony the night before at Gethsemane. In fact, it perfectly pictures it because the sprinkling of the blood is, again, a picture of the Lord. Matthew Henry explains it quite well. Here's his quote. The the blood of the lamb must be sprinkled, denoting the applying of merits of Christ's death to our souls. We must receive the atonement. Faith is the bunch of hyssop by which we apply the promises and the benefits of the blood of Christ laid up in them to ourselves. It was sprinkled on the doorposts denoting the open profession we are to make of faith in Christ. It was not to be sprinkled upon the threshold, which cautions us to take heed of trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. It is precious blood, and it must be precious to us. The blood thus sprinkled was a means of preserving the Israelites from the destroying angel who had nothing to do with where the blood was. The blood of Christ is the believer's protection from the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and the damnation of hell. As he noted, the threshold was not marked with blood. It is an explicit lesson explained in Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what it says there. Of how much much worse punishment do you suppose will be 
thought worthy of who th is thought worthy who has trampled the son of god underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace it would have been a profane act to strike the threshold with blood because it is a profane thing to trample the blood of the covenant underfoot the picture is very clear verse 8 then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire the Hebrews were given specific guidelines to roast the lamb. The reason for this is that it is the quickest way of cooking the meat. Further, roasting would allow the entire animal to be cooked without dividing it. It is a sign and a memorial to us concerning the painful sufferings of Christ. Christ died for us, assuming all of the divine wrath that we deserve upon himself. This is pictured in the fire of the sacrifice. There is a picture of purification and sanctity being tied to the fire. But there is one more picture which may be drawn from the roasting process. Justin Martyr says that the process was accomplished by using two wooden spits at right angles, and thus it would extend the sacrifice on a cross. If so, and if that's not just a fabled legend, there could be no better picture of the sufferings of our Lord. Next, it notes that this was to be done, as it says, that night. This would have been on the night of the 15th, the night of the full moon. It is not by accident that the night the Hebrews left Egypt, there would have been a full moon to assist them on their journey out of Egypt. Everything was perfectly planned for this special moment in time. And as a side note, by understanding what Jesus, that Jesus died that same afternoon, 1,500 years later, we can know with 100% certainty that it was not an eclipse that darkened the skies that day. As the moon is full at night, it is on the opposite side of the earth from the sun. When the sun is out, the moon is hidden. In other words, it is impossible to have an eclipse of the sun during a full moon. So, if you see one of those countless videos claiming that this is what occurred and proving it by star charts, I want you to save your money and not buy that video, okay? Again, it was not by accident that the moon was full at that time. It was thus a sign to the people that it was not a natural occurrence which darkened the skies that day. Rather, it was a supernatural one which reflected the state of the heavens at the death of the Lord. Verse 8 continues, With unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. The unleavened bread is later noted as being used because of the swiftness of the exodus out of Egypt. Now this is certain, but it only supposes that the bread was not to be made until the time of the meal. They had at least five days' notice as to what was coming, and so the Lord had another reason in mind for this as well. The unleavened bread, or matzah, is a picture of the Lord. We take it every single week. Leaven in the Bible pictures sin. It causes bread to get puffed up, such as when a man is filled with pride. And leaven is a species of corruption because it is produced by fermentation. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus warned the the disciples by saying this. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul explicitly ties leaven to sin and how we should avoid it. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The bitter herbs 
are certainly a lesson to the Israelites and to us. To Israel, they pictured the bitter bondage that they were about to leave. For us, it's a similar picture. We are to remember the bitterness of our own Egypt, the life of sin that we had once been a part of. It was a land of torture, bondage, and living under the wicked ruler of this world. The bitter herbs are a memorial of Christ's work to lead us out of that sorry place and to the wonders of eternal life with him. Verse 9, do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. These first instructions are given to complement and then repeat that the animal was not to be either raw or boiled. It was only to be roasted as a whole animal. And the entire thing, including its head, legs, and entrails were to be cooked. Now, later commentators say that the entrails were certainly removed and washed and returned, but that's only a commentary. What we have is exactly what was expected. This again is a picture of Christ. His whole human nature is infused both in a spiritual sense and an effectual sense into his church. This is symbolized in the Lord's Supper, which he instituted prior to his death. The eating of the entire animal is intended to instill in us the truth that we are expected to have all of Christ or none of him. Verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. There are probably at least two reasons for this particular verse being included. The first is to ensure that nobody would take along any bone or any other part of an animal as a talisman or a memorial which could later be turned into a talisman. If you don't think this is likely, I want you to do a search through Catholic websites concerning the body parts of people, which are used for exactly that. They have heaps and heaps of them. This Passover was to be participated in and then memorialized in later remembrance feasts, but it was not to be turned into a good luck charm that could be carried through one's life. The second reason is similar to the first. It was to ensure that there would be no putrefaction of anything left behind or any possible use of the bones or any other parts by those who came behind the Israelites for profane purposes. In type and in picture, we are to carry with us the sacrifice of Christ, not in idols, but in our hearts and in who we are. We are to honor and revere the God who gave us this great lamb and who has redeemed us through his death. Concerning the entire Passover meal, Matthew Henry again gives us wonderful words of how they pictured Christ and our relationship to him. Here's what he says. The solemn eating of the lamb was typical of our gospel duty to Christ. The Paschal lamb was not to be looked upon only, but to be fed upon. So we must, make, we must by faith make Christ our own, and we must receive spiritual strength and nourishment from him. It was all to be eaten. Those who by faith feed upon Christ must feed upon a whole Christ. They must take Christ and his yoke, Christ and his cross, as well as Christ and his crown. It was to be eaten at once, not put by till morning. Today Christ is offered, and it is to be accepted while it is called today, before we sleep the sleep of death. It was to be eaten with bitter herbs in remembrance of the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt. We must feed upon Christ with sorrow and brokenness of heart in remembrance of sin. Christ will be sweet to us if sin be bitter. Verse 11, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. 
so you shall eat it in haste. The words here are given in advance for the people of Israel to know that their time of bondage was coming to a close and to be quickly ready to depart from it and into a new part of redemptive history. The New King James Version says a belt on your waist, and that is not the greatest translation in the world. It does not give a sense of what's going on. Rather, it should say, with your loins girded. The dress of the people was loose. When they wanted to travel, especially to go in a hurry, they would tighten up the loose clothing so that it wouldn't cause them to trip or get caught up on anything. An example of this is found in 1 Kings. Here's what it says. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. In the New Testament, Peter gives us a spiritual application of this for the believer in Christ. Here's what he says. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Having sandals on their feet was completely out of the regular custom. In Middle Eastern homes, sandals and shoes have always been taken off indoors. This would be a sign to them that they were literally ready to leave any time in an instant of being told when to go. The staff in the hand admonition is the same as the shoes. When the people went out, they would grab their staff for a walk. It was used for defense against whatever came along as well and help over difficult terrains that they would encounter. It's no different today. But when one comes home, they take their staff and they set it aside. The Lord was telling them that they would need their staffs and they would be needed that night. If they didn't have them as they ate, they may be left behind in the rush that would ensue. Therefore, they were told to be ready at any and every moment. Thus, they were to eat the meal in haste and in a state of preparedness for a hasty departure. Everything about the words indicates urgency. Probably the best analogy for us concerning this admonition for them to eat it in haste and to be ready in haste is that all we have is right now in Christ. We have no assurance of tomorrow, and therefore we need to always use today to the fullest. When people need to hear the gospel, we need to be prepared to give it. And when the Lord blows a trumpet to call us home, we need to be prepared for our departure. We in Christ have been redeemed, but only so far as we belong to him. Someday that's going to be realized in the twinkling of an eye. That is what we need to always be ready for, both towards others and as individuals awaiting our exodus from this fallen world. And we finish with these words from verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. Pesach hu leyehovah. The words are emphatic in the Hebrew. It is not just a common meal, nor is it any ordinary sacrifice. As the pulpit commentary says, the lamb is Jehovah's. It is his pass sign, the mark of his protection, the precious means of your preservation from death. As such, view it, and though ye eat it in haste, eat it in reverence. The meal then is to be used as a metonymy for the entire observance. Everything about what is to occur is tied up in the sacrifice of this lamb. It is a perfect reflection of the work of the Lord. All Every single thing to do with redemptive history is tied up in his cross. This is also the first time that the term Pesach or Passover is used in the Bible. The meaning of the word is debated by scholars, but it appears to have two concepts tied into one. The first is that the Lord will pass by rapidly 
And the second is that he will spare those who have trusted him, those who have applied the blood. And this is exactly what we can expect of Christ on our behalf, his church. A time is coming upon the world when great plagues will cut through the masses of humanity. There will be woe and there will be terror everywhere and most will not survive. But before that time comes, the Lord promises an exodus for his people. They will be spared from what lies ahead. The only way to be a part of that wondrous moment, though, which will be a, just a blink in a moment of time, and it, then it will be over, is to have the blood of the Lamb applied to your own life. With that seal of surety, you can be exempted from the destruction and taken directly to God's promised land. So let me tell you how you can receive this grace. The Bible says that we are at enmity with God. We're separated from God because of sin in our life. And the Bible gives us the remedy, even from the earliest pages all the way through to the end, that God is going to do something wondrous. He's going to reconcile us to himself without us doing anything. No works are involved on our part. And how did he do it? He stepped out of eternity himself. He united with human flesh and he became a man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He's born of a woman, and so he's fully human, but he's born of God, and so he's fully man. And therefore, he was born without sin, and then the Bible shows us that he lived without sin and that he died without sin. And therefore, he is an acceptable substitute for the sins that you and I have committed. If we will simply trust what he did, God says that he will take our sins and he'll cast them as far away as the east is from the west. You know, if you look at a compass and you get up to the North Pole, that thing will swing around and it'll tell you south is in that direction. But when you go from east to west, it never stops. You're always going east. You never get to a point where it turns around and goes the opposite direction. From east to west is a metaphor for saying that it is infinitely gone. You are completely saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and your sin will never, never, never be remembered again. God cannot remember them because... He, you are in Christ, and all he sees is the perfection of his son. So if you've never called on Jesus Christ to be your Lord and to save you, just call out to him today. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I realize I can't save myself, but I know that you can do it, and I receive what you did, and he will save you, and he'll put you on a great path to a heavenly promised land. I can't wait for that day. I hope it comes this afternoon. hope it comes right now. Our closing verse today comes from uh, Titus. It's chapter 2, it's verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Next week, we're going to look at Exodus 12. It's verses 12 through 20. With our soul, we will bless. The sermon is entitled, Saved Unto Holiness. It'll be our 33rd Exodus sermon. And as I say each week, and we're getting closer and closer to this thing in the Exodus account, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him. He will do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today is entitled, It Is the Lord's Passover. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt concerning what to do, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. 
Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month it will be no bother. Every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father. A lamb for a household, so they shall do as I have told. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it, according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, your count for the lamb, you shall make it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and further directions from me you will hear. Now you shall keep it until the same month on the fourteenth day. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight towards the end of the day. And they shall take some of the blood on the two doorposts it they shall put, and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it, but not on the threshold where is placed the foot. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. They shall do all of this, as I have said. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, as you have heard. Its head with its legs and its entrails, do this according to my word. You shall let none of it remain until morning does return, and what remains of it until morning, it you shall with fire burn. And thus you shall eat it, with on your waist a belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so that it can be felt. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover with which my people have been graced. Lord, thank you for the Lamb of God the Lord Jesus, who takes away our sin. We can have confidence now as we trod that for us the victory he did win. Help us never to forget the great deeds you have wrought. Help us to fix our eyes always on the Lord Jesus, who by his precious blood we were bought, he who has done such marvelous things for us. Praise you, O Heavenly Father. Yes, we praise you. And hallelujah to the Lamb who is ever faithful and true. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for getting me through this sermon without crying. It's so wonderful to see what Jesus did for us, and it's all pictured 1,500 years before he did it, so that we wouldn't make the mistake and miss what did happen when it happened. And yet, your people Israel missed it, and much of the world still fails to see the glory of what you have done for us, all pictured in the redemption of a people group from a, a land of bondage. Lord, you have brought us out of sin, you've brought us out of death, and you've led us all the way to your heavenly kingdom through the blood of your Son. How can it be? How can it be that you have done this for people like us? Help us to get this word out. Give us boldness in the surely difficult times that we have ahead of us in this country and in this world as we are continuously going to be more and more persecuted for our faith. Help us to be bold and to say it anyway. So what if somebody takes our life? Take us home early, Jesus. That'll be great. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we commit the Lord's table to you that we're going to take in just a moment, glorifying you because of what you have done for us. And Lord, a special thank you for the wife you've given me of 31 years today. What a wonderful blessing it is. Thank you for that. I pray for each person here that they have a great week ahead full of blessings and abundance. And uh, Lord, come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen. In the uh, Lord's Supper, we get the directions for it directly from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we read these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 
And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pari agathen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this one's not for you yet, Bubba. <laughs> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this wonderful story of Exodus, the Passover, the giving of the Lamb. Thank you for the Lamb. Amen. Amen.